Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. You have an outline sheet there in front of you, I trust, this evening, and we're going to be looking at what it means to understand Calvinism. Understanding Calvinism is our general theme, and this evening we're going to be looking at the topic of total depravity. Romans chapter 11, the 33rd, 33rd verse says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. And we're going to find that to be true when we talk about some of the themes that uh, fall under the heading of understanding Calvinism. God's ways are unsearchable and they're past finding out. Erwin Lutzer has an excellent book under the title, The Doctrines That Divide. And yes, I would recommend this book by Erwin Lutzer, The Doctrines That Divide. He asks a question, why can't we agree? And then he makes the following observation. Luther says, why can't we agree about baptism, the Lord's Supper, the freedom of the will, or even the most basic question, what must I do to be saved? Then he offers, we, not the text, are the problem. And he moves forward, one, There are limitations of men. No one can say he has the whole picture. We're finite, and our God deals with the infinite. So we deal with the limitations of men. Secondly, he notes, there's the the perversion of man. We make the Bible say what we want it to say. And so we fall prey to the challenge of not being able to get along. Number three, there's the unbelief of men. Theological liberalism, the denial of the miraculous, has affected the minds of many. And then finally, he notes, we have a hard time letting go of our tradition. And especially when we deal with the topic at hand this evening, these observations are very true. It was Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, who's been noted to have said, in necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty, in all things, charity. That's good counsel. In necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, I've traveled to a few countries over the years, and uh, having a son-in-law from India, I've learned much from listening to him. My son-in-law from India says, Dad, Christians in America find more things to divide over than Christians in India. He said, when you meet a fellow Christian in India, you're so surprised to meet a fellow Christian that a lot of the little things we deal with in America don't matter. There's a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom in that. American Christianity has been blessed with Bible study tools, with those who have studied to minister God's Word with freedom of speech and freedom of religion now for centuries. And with the blessings often come responsibilities And our very unity can find itself attacked by the little nuances that we know when it comes to the heading of theology. So just by way of introduction this evening, as we deal with the topic of Calvinism, of course, we're dealing with a doctrinal system that dates back to the one for whom it's been named, John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1563, though Calvin was born in France and was French by birth. He ministered in Switzerland. 
He's the author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which provides a touchstone for those who want to know Calvinistic theory. And his theories, his positions, especially on the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of soteriology, his positions have become a very veritable seedbed of controversy. There are many challenges that come when it comes to John Calvin. We're going to be talking about some of them tonight. And Josh Taylor, can I have you do me a favor? I just looked down here and I left a stack of books on my desk. And if you don't mind bringing those down here this evening, I might need to refer to some of those so I'm not going from the top of my head. And uh, I think you can probably bring them in and that'll help me out. But I think we're, we're safe at least at this point to say the remonstrance, the remonstrance was in 1610, big word, what does it mean? It means that points of debate were submitted by the disciples of Jacobus Arminius, who also had trained under a man by the name of Beza, who'd been a disciple of Calvin. Arminius himself, a brilliant student and theologian, had seen things in Calvin's doctrine that he uh, was plagued by, not wanting to create a scene, and not a person, thank you, with a pugilistic spirit. He taught his classes, and in teaching his classes, he had many people in his classes that were enamored with his teachings, and following his death, the students of Jacobus Arminius put forward their points of debate, their remonstrance against what would be known as uh, the doctrines of Calvinism. Now at that time, they were the teachings of Calvin, but because the remonstrance was put forward, there had to be a rebuttal to it. That happened at the Synod of Dort, the Synod of Dort. 1610. The Synod of Dort happened after Arminius was dead. Forty-six of Arminius's disciples uh, set forth their position in the remonstrance against some of the things that they had discovered in their study of Calvinism. And so in Holland, the Synod of Dort gathered together, and as they gathered together, uh, Christianity Today called the gathering together at Dort, Protestantism's greatest debate. They met together from the 3rd of November, 1618, to the 6th of May in 1619. There were 81 theologians, 56 of them Dutch, 25 of them foreign, some uh, from places like Great Britain, uh, some from Spain, and all around uh, the accessible world at the time. The only people not in attendance at the Synod of Dort were the disciples of Jacobus Arminius. They had already, most of them, been put out of the church because of their writing of the Remonstrance. So, just to get a clear picture, at the Synod of Dort, you have everyone who's in agreement, and they're there to defend the position of John Calvin. They're not there to bring in the points of Arminius. Those points have been written in the Remonstrance. The writings are now going to be reviewed, and five specific points become the big focus. No Arminians were present, and those five points uh, that were in focus became the five points of Calvinism. So the Arminians began this thing, if you will. They're to blame, if you will, for TULIP and the five points of Calvinism. They come from the remonstrance against what Calvin had written. The remonstrance is boiled together, and now the reply of the Senate of Dort, and you know the T-U-L-I-P, which 
having happened in Holland, it's kind of ironic that it's a tulip, the flower of Holland, that defines for us the five points of, of Calvinism. So you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Sometimes people will say to me, Pastor, there are five points of Calvinism. How many of those points are you? And it really is the most awkward question that you can ask a person. It's, it's really not a fair question. Because to answer the question, you first have to ask, what do you mean by the points? And there are various definitions of the points. So, don't take me out of context, listen to me carefully. Depending on how somebody defines these points, I can be zero. Tonight you'll see why. I can be as many as four. I can never be five. But it just depends on who's defining it. And normally you don't have time to define the points before you have to give answer to the question. How many points are you? You've got to define it first, folks. It's really not fair to ask that question because I think if I gave a poll this evening, how many of you believe in man's total depravity? In this room tonight, how many say, I believe in the total depravity of man? Let's see your hands. Okay? As we define it this evening, I don't. And I'm going to show you why. How many say, well, I believe in the perseverance of the saints? By, by now you're saying, Pastor, don't ask me questions if you're going to yell at me. Okay? <laughs> Do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? Okay? If you're thinking that means eternal security, I agree. I believe in eternal security. I do not believe in the perseverance of the saints. Not as it's classically defined. In classical definition of Calvinism, I can easily be a zero-point Calvinist. But in pop definitions, as the definitions move, and they have. So we're going to go into some classical definitions this evening. When we do so, you're going to see how unfair it is to ever ask a person, how many points are you? Okay? It really is truly unfair. Presently, there's a lot of interest in Calvinism. Of course, there are spokesmen, whether it be Alexander White or John Piper or R.C. Sproul. The Gospel Coalition has become very um, popular in America today. Uh, one thing that holds the Gospel Coalition together is they're very Calvinistic in their orientation on the doctrine of soteriology. The Reformer's Study Bible has uh, sold a whole lot of a uh, uh, printed copies, and many people are enamored uh, by what they're reading. Strong Calvinists believe that the five points of Calvinist, Calvinism rather, must be held as a unit of indivisible truth. In introducing the five points of Calvinism, Lorraine Bettner, in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, a very strong Calvinistic author, declares that, quote, these are not isolated and interdependent doctrines, but are so interrelated that they form a simple, harmonious, self-consistent system. Prove any one of them false, and the whole system must be abandoned. So again, back to the question that's typically asked, how many points? Not a fair question, because the real Calvinist is going to say they all hold together like a golden chain. You can't pluck one from the other. And by the way, they're all ours, says the Calvinist. We don't share them. We don't share our toys. So you've got to have all of them, or it's not J.I. Packer, concurs saying the five points, though separately stated, are really inseparable. They hang together. You cannot reject one without rejecting them all. I have a book here by 
David Steele and Curtis Thomas on the five points of Calvinism. And in the book by Steele and Thomas, this is what uh, the authors note. You've already heard it said by others, but it says, to judge these doctrines individually without relating each to the others would be like attempting to evaluate one of Rembrandt's paintings by looking at only one color at a time and never viewing the work as a whole. Do not therefore merely judge the biblical evidence for each point separately, but rather consider carefully the collective value of the evidence when these five doctrines are viewed together as a system. So we're going to not take the advice of Steele this evening, and we're just going to pull apart one of them and say, well, let's just evaluate uh, total depravity uh, this evening. When I was younger and heading off to seminary, I told a fellow that I was meeting with, a pastor that I respected, he said, now where are you going next year? I said, I'm going to Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you better be careful. I've heard that's a Calvinistic school. Well, I was 20, and I'm like, I've heard that word, but I really don't know much about it. In my undergraduate years, had we talked about it, it was 50 demerits. So I hadn't talked about it. And when I got to seminary, I discovered maybe having the antenna up was wise. There are all kinds of conversations that I didn't find myself necessarily ready for. While acknowledging the warnings of the strong Calvinists, we're entering this evening into the consideration of this first point, the total depravity of man. And so we're under the heading, total depravity considered. Obviously, no legitimate Bible theologian would deny that man is a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us are sinners. The questions pertaining to the doctrine of sin focus on how sin was imparted. How did we come to be sinners? We agree that we are sinners, but the real debates are, how did I come to be this way? How did this happen? Well, we know the story of Adam and Eve, but we have to go beyond the story of Adam and Eve. How did God put upon our race this that we know to be the curse how do we come to be sinners? The definition of total depravity, by the way, here's R.C. Sproul. The five points are not a summary of Calvinism. Calvinism has many points, many more points rather than five. So he's acknowledging that Calvinism is a system, and we're just going to be looking at five of those points. But many authors will say the same thing. John Piper says, when people ask me if I'm a five-point Calvinist, I'm probably more like a ten-point Calvinist. There are many more points to consider, but we are focused on uh, the tulip this evening. So total depravity, a general definition is uh, offered there for you. The general def definition coming from Baker's Theological Dictionary, total depravity as a theological term used to denote the unmeritoriousness, and I looked that word up and it's not a word, but it's in the dictionary. I thought that was pretty cool. So it's the unmeritoriousness of man in the sight of God that we have no merit in the sight of God. That might have been an easier way to say it than Baker's Theological Dictionary. A specific definition, Calvinists often speak of the doctrine of total depravity under the heading, and this is a big one, total inability, total inability. 
Bettner, in his uh, classic book on the sovereignty of God, has a whole chapter under the title, Total Inability. And a strong Calvinist would prefer to speak under that heading than to speak of total depravity. The strong Calvinist prefers the term total inability. So, Steele, again, in his book, on page 24, under the heading Total Total Inability, makes this observation. The view one takes concerning salvation, I want you to listen carefully. The view one takes concerning salvation will be determined to a large extent by the view one takes concerning sin and its effects on human nature. It's not surprising, therefore, that the first article dealt with in the Calvinistic system is the biblical doctrine of total inability or total depravity. When Calvinists speak of man as being totally depraved, they mean that man's nature is corrupt, perverse, and sinful throughout. We agree with that. I agree with that. The adjective total does not mean that each sinner is totally or completely corrupt in his actions and thoughts as it's possible for him to be. Instead, the word total is used to indicate that the whole of man's being has been affected by sin. The corruption extends to every part of man, his body, his soul. Sin has affected all, the totality of man's faculties, his mind, and his will. And as a result of this inborn corruption, the natural man is totally unable to do anything spiritually good. Thus, Calvinists speak of man's total inability. The inability intended by this terminology is spiritual inability. It means that the sinner is so spiritually bankrupt that he can do nothing pertaining to his salvation. So the strong Calvinists would say uh, total inability. And so the big battle comes then as to the origination of depravity. While all agree that as in Adam all died, Romans 5 and verse 12, how did this come to permeate my being? How did this come to permeate my being? When we talk about the origination, we can go all the way back to Augustine. You remember we talked about Augustine, the great Roman Catholic theologian, and Pelagius, who got into this battle together, and their battle was God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. God is sovereign, man has a, has a will. God is sovereign, man has a will. How do I balance these things out? If God's sovereign, am I an automaton? And so Pelagius came along and put a strong emphasis on man's will. Augustine came along with a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty. And then there are people in between called semi-Pelagians who say, Pelagius said man is born with a propensity to sin. Augustine said, no, man is born totally cursed by sin. The semi-Pelagian says, man's born with a propensity to sin, but God has sent forward his, uh, his grace in such a way that we can respond favorably. So they're semi-Pelagians. We can cooperate, they're saying, at some level with salvation. Now, if I've lost you already in the weeds, that's all right. We've got a long way to go. That's the Pelagians and the Augustinians, and that's the precursor remember, to Calvin and Arminius. Same battle hundreds of years later. And so Calvin, sovereignty of God, Arminius, the free will of man. And so how do we come to be like we are? Where did this sin nature come from? There is the seminal 
or realistic view. These are theological terms, descriptors that theologians use to share their opinions. There's the seminal or the realistic view. I think I could also call it the natural view. And so that view is that God imputes the sin of Adam immediately to all of his posterity in virtue of the organic unity. As in Adam all died, you were all in Adam. His DNA is your DNA. It was a physical condemnation of the curse passed along from generation to generation so that the whole race at the time of Adam's transgression was immediately tainted. Then there's the representative or the federalist view that God imputes the sin of Adam judicially. It was a decree. It's not bound up in the DNA. It was in the decree that God made upon all of Adam's posterity. As in Adam all died, and so now there's the counter. God decrees as in Adam all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. God decrees new life. And so there's a balance on the Federalist side. There's a decree, all in sin. There's a decree with the new birth, you've been made alive. Well, why then the naturalist side? Well, it seems that the seminal view or the realistic view uh, somehow comes along to kind of satisfy the fairness issue. Is it fair for God to just categorically proclaim all are sinners? I don't see that the seminal view takes much care of the the whole fairness issue, but here's how it goes. So those who would take the seminal view would say, well, it just makes sense because Adam sinned, sin was in his body, sin's in his DNA, sin's in his soul and his spirit. It's passing along generation from generation. So we can really blame Adam and not have to blame God as much. But in the end, the curse was given by God, so it doesn't help you out that much to go seminal. So yeah, I'm going to lean toward federalism, and I'm going to say because it balances in Romans 5, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. God decreed this spiritual death. God decrees your spiritual life. And when I say that, those who like Calvinism like me, because most Calvinists are federalists. Okay, but the extent and the effect of total depravity is the next challenge, and we'll cover this really quickly because I want to go somewhere kind of fun tonight. Total depravity does not mean that each sinner is totally or completely corrupt in all of his actions and thoughts, as corrupt as he can possibly be. We could be more corrupt. Viewed negatively, total depravity then does not mean that the unsaved person has no disposition to do right. Unsaved, unregenerate people can have a disposition to do right. Total depravity doesn't mean that they can never be kind, that they can never be loving because they're unsaved. It doesn't mean that the unsaved never do good. The Lord actually almost compliments the Pharisees when he says, you know, in Matthew 23, you tithe of the mint and the anise. These things you ought to have done. They were not saved, but they were doing some measure of good. It does not mean that the unsaved commit every sin there is to commit. That reference should be 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, where the Word of God says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Well, if you can progress worse, it means that you haven't gone as far as you can go. 
So when we're talking about total depravity, you haven't gone as far as you can possibly go, and there are different levels of participation in sin. But viewed positively, total depravity means sin has penetrated everything that I am. Isaiah chapter 1 says the whole of the body is filled with putrid sores. From the top of the head to the bottom of the foot, all nothing but putrid sores. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We have completely been affected, our whole man, our mind, our soul, our spirit, every part of us, our body, of course, has been impacted by sin. It affects the whole. It means that man can commit the worst of crimes and the worst of sins. Romans says, with regarding, regard to sinners in Romans 3 and verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And we're seeing something of that today. We're, this past week, if you didn't hear, John MacArthur admonishing his church in Los Angeles with regard to praying for the soul of the governor of the state of Colorado. You might want to Google that. It was good. MacArthur said, I don't come before you to be in a debate. I come before you as a pastor with a burden for a man's soul. Apparently, the governor of California has put up billboards advocating for abortion and quoting the words of Jesus, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it, it, it caused MacArthur to say, I, I've got to go on record here. When a man who's so perverting Scripture does this, he puts himself under the, under the threat of the judgment of God. And he cites Psalm 50. The 50th Psalm speaks to those who are evil who dare to take the Word of God into their own tongue and challenges his church family, pray for the soul of the governor of our state. And I think they're well advised to do so. I think that's appropriate. We can commit terrible things. We can even use Jesus' words to commit the cruelest of acts because we're depraved, all parts of us. And it means, yes, we can commit the worst of sins. It means man continues to get worse. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And some people have a hard time with this dispensationalists are often blamed. What a pessimistic outlook on life. That things are getting worse and worse. And then you're looking for the, the rapture and the tribulation. Now, what a, I don't want to be a dispensationalist because that's pessimistic. Whoa, 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 time out. That's realistic. The Bible says evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And I don't think that there's anything more optimistic than the blessed hope, which is the rapture. It's, it's a blessed hope because it's a hope that the rapture is going to come. That's, that, that's divine optimism, folks. Anyway, yes, I do believe man is getting worse. I, I don't know about you, but I think if God would have told me, name all the animals that you see come by, you know, file them in class and order and all that stuff, put it all together, I would have been really messed up by about the 15th animal. Adam did that, kept them all separate, named them all, no problem. And he did it in a relatively short time. How did he do that? I think Adam's mind was more advanced than mine. Because I think that the degeneracy of sin has affected our DNA to some level. While I'm not a seminalist, I do think we don't have the capacities that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Adam would have had. We have computers, though, so that's a help. 
Further, it means man cannot save himself. There's nothing you can do because all, Isaiah 64, of your righteousness is as filthy rags. So let's see why, having said things that you're probably familiar with on total depravity, why would Pastor Phelps say, sometimes I don't believe in the tea and the tulip? Well, here's why. There's a theological controversy that begins here. This is why the strong Calvinist says you can't take these five points apart. They have to hold together. And here's why they say that. So the position of the Calvinist is this. Because you're totally depraved and totally, you have a total inability, then the only way for you to be saved is for God to give you new life. Well, we believe that. But I gotta, you got to pause now. You can't cry out in a prayer of faith if you're dead. So you can't ask for salvation until first you have regeneration. That's the Calvinist, strong Calvinist position. Regeneration comes before faith. That's called the order salutis, or the, or, or the yeah, order salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. Okay, so the order salutis has been argued over for years. Lots of things happen when you get saved, praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, old things pass away and all things become new, right? So at the moment of your salvation, there's regeneration that happens, there's justification that happens, sanctification begins. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. There's just a host of wonderful things that, boom, they happen. So let's break that down in order and try to see which ones happen first. And the Calvinist is going to say, don't you realize that Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men cannot respond. Because you're dead, God has to impart new life before you can cry out for salvation. So the strong Calvinist says, total depravity, meaning, listen, you listening? Mean total inability. You have to have regeneration before you can have faith. Okay, let's pause there. The, the non-Calvinist says, no, 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 I don't see that. Faith precedes regeneration. So which is it? And why is it all that important? Let me grab Burkhoff here. He's one of my favorite Calvinists. Let me read this to you, and you've got to listen carefully to it. Listen to this one. The ground or the reason for infant baptism. Now remember, Reformed theologians believe in infant baptism. So why? What's the, what's the sense of getting the baby wet and making him cry? The, the ground or reason for infant baptism. In Reformed circles, some hold that children are baptized on the ground of a presumptive regeneration. That is, on the assumption, not the assurance, that they are regenerated. We can't be sure, but we can assume when we baptize them. Others take the position that they're baptized on the ground of the all-comprehensive covenant promise of God which also includes the promise of regeneration. This view deserves preference. The covenant promise affords the only certain and objective ground for the baptism of infants. But, and if the question is raised how infant baptism can function as a means of grace to strengthen spiritual life, the answer is that it can at the very moment of its administration strengthen the regenerate life, if already present in the child. Did you just hear what I read? This is a classic Calvinist. He said when people ask, what's the benefit of getting a baby wet in baptism? Well, if they're regenerate, it's going to strengthen their regenerate life. What's regeneration mean? It means new birth. 
What's new birth? It's salvation. So he's saying we baptize babies either under the covenant promise that they're going to come to regeneration, or if regeneration is already there, we do it so God's grace can be imparted upon the one who's already saved. Reformed theologians baptize infants. Why do they baptize infants? They baptize infants into the covenant, and they baptize infants in hope of regeneration in that infant baptism. Charles Spurgeon was being cited in newspapers, his, his penny pulpit, his Sunday sermons were being published around the world until he preached a message that you ought to read if you're a good Baptist. Charles Spurgeon preached a message on um, infant regeneration, infant baptism. And he called out infant baptism as a damnable doctrine. And it is. If you have family members who have practiced infant baptism as we do, and have felt that because of their baptism they're going to heaven, when they were blindly baptized as an infant, you'll realize it's a damnable doctrine. So here's Piper. We can say first that regeneration is the cause of faith. Having been born of God results in our believing. Our believing is the immediate evidence of God's begetting. Order salutis, which is first. What did Piper just say? Regeneration's first. So what does, where do they get that? Well, they get it from Ephesians 2 and verse 1. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. So spiritual death is not like physical death. This is what I want to make clear tonight. Spiritual death is not like physical death. The spiritually dead still sense spiritual stimuli. Why is the Spirit of God in the earth today? To convict the earth or the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's doing that work right now. Paul, when he was still lost, kicked against the pricks. He was responding to spiritual stimuli. Felix, when he heard Paul preach, was so convicted, he pushed back. He wasn't, so the analogy that's used, the figure that's often used is you have a person up here in a coffin and you come and you poke them and you prod them, they won't move because they're dead. And so the Calvinists will say, even so, a person who's dead in their trespasses and sin, they can respond nothing to spiritual stimuli. So we have to put regeneration before faith. So what does the Bible say? Jesus made this promise in John 5 and verse 25. Often you read by this verse thinking, well, that's talking about the future resurrection. It's not. This verse is talking about the work of regeneration that he would do. He said, verily, verily, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. That's not a verse talking about the resurrection. That's a verse talking about new birth. And so when you scan the Bible, you have passages like this. Let's ask, order of salvation. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. First they received, as many as received him, then what? They were regenerated. They became the sons of God. Which came first? As many as received him, that almost sounds like free will, doesn't it? To them he gave power to become what? Regenerated. So let's ask order salutis. I could give you more verses than this, so let's go fast. Acts 11 verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life which came first. 
Repentance or regeneration? Well, repentance came first. It was unto life. John 5 and verse 40, yet you refused to come to me to have life. He didn't, pre- he didn't preach, you now have life, so come to me. He preached, come to me and you'll have life. John 20, verse 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. You've heard me share this verse over and again. But in this verse is the order of salvation because it's the theme verse of the Gospel of John. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The order is laid out as follows. These are written, that's the scriptures, that you may believe and that by believing, you may have life. Life is the faith, the fruit of faith and repentance, not the other way around. Here's Acts 15 and verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by faith. It does not say he purified their heart by regeneration, so to help them have faith. Clearly, a purified heart is a fruit of faith, not the other way around. Galatians 3 verse 26. You're all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ. So the order, you're sons of God, how? Through faith. Obviously, becoming a son, being born of God is a fruit of faith. It's not the other way around. Wow, that's a lot of verses. We're not done. James 1, verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He gives us birth, how? Through the word of truth. Calvinists teach that the word of truth will certainly be rejected by the unregenerate. Thus, how can the apostle say the word may be the means of the new birth? Birth must precede the word if Calvinism is true. That's not what the text indicates. The text says the word brought them to faith. 1 Timothy 1.16. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. What's the order? They believe in him, they receive eternal life. I have a quote from Spurgeon that I think is appropriate to close with this evening. So Spurgeon was a Calvinist. So by this time you're hearing, Pastor Phelps does not believe in total inability. Okay, so I'm striking number one, I'm not. Believing Now, total depravity, every part of my being is impacted by sin. I believe in that. But if you define it as total inability, uh-uh. Remember I told you it's a trick question to ask one through five, how many are you? You have to have definition. Definition of total inability, which is classic Calvinism, I have a real hard time with. Why? Well, Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Calvinist. Listen to what he said. It was September 20th, 1563, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said, if I am to preach the faith of Christ to a man who is regenerated, then the man being regenerated is saved already, and it's unnecessary and ridiculous thing for me to preach Christ to him and bid him to believe in order to be saved when he's saved already being regenerated. So then, I'm only to preach faith to those who have it? Absurd indeed! Is not this waiting till the man is cured and then bringing him the medicine? This is preaching Christ to the righteous and not to sinners. Somebody has said, it is look and live, not live and look. It is look unto me and be saved, or be saved, and it's, or is it be saved and then look unto me? Is it he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, or he hath everlasting life will believe in me? Did Paul say to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Or did he say, thou shalt be saved and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well pointed. If regeneration precedes faith, then accepting Jesus as sovereign Lord becomes meaningless and a pointless debate. We do not accept what has already been given to us. So regeneration of infants because there's total inability. I'm not buying it. And the reason you've seen it up here on verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. First faith, then regeneration. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.